is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, June 27, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. And I can testify to that because yesterday was a total mess for me. I'm Buster only working from my home in Montana. Kayla Schwenk, Sarah Abbott working back in Bristol or in their homes near Bristol, I should say. But guys, yesterday we were supposed to do a baggage claim Monday, right? Baggage claim Monday from the Salt Lake City Airport, your new favorite yeah. airport in America. Flight canceled. No problem. No problem. We'll push it back because we like right. to get the pod in on a Monday. But you arrived in Bozeman and uh, tragedy struck again. Well, I go out in the car and I had noticed last week there was an indicator light that uh, was in, that was showing me that there might be some sort of a problem. And I kind of, eh, yeah, it's probably not that big of a deal. And I went through the parking toll uh, and then I hear this flap, flap, flap. And I was like, oh, no, the tire, left front tire was flat. And so and I needed to be on time, as you guys know needed to be very efficient with my time to do the taping like we had scheduled, but I texted him like, no, nope, we're done. Like there was no way that I was going to change that tire. And then we were going to get back and, you know, I was going to get back in time to, uh, to make that happen. So I apologize to everybody. I'm going to get the tire fixed this morning, put the temp on yesterday. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll have a podcast today. We'll podcast tomorrow, podcast on Friday. That sounds like a great plan. Let's get after it, Buster. Much to discuss. All right, let's do it. Well, well, obviously today we got to talk about the Mets because they are a disaster. Uh, and I know this, I had a better day than the Mets did for sure, who came off a tough loss on Sunday. This is what happened with Buck Showalter tried to navigate through the bottom of the eighth inning without using David Robertson or Adam Ottavino. Bottom of the eighth inning, Mets had a 6-3 to three lead when that half inning started. This is how the Phillies tied the game. Brigham kicks and deals in the pitch way inside. It did hit him. It hit him, and the game is tied. And we do have ice for that. <laughs> yeah, we do. 6-6 six, six, as Kyle Schwarber hit by a pitch with the bases loaded. Those were the happy Phillies broadcasters on Sports Radio 94 WIP. What did the WCBS, the Mets broadcaster, sound like when the Phillies took the lead? Now the pitch. Breaking ball inside, he hit him. He hit him on three and two, and that brings the go-ahead run home. Unbelievable implosion by the Mets bullpen and defense to an extent. Here in the eighth inning, the Phillies have taken the lead seven to six, and Buck Showalter is headed out to the bullpen. Howie Rose making that call. Here's what it sounded like with Gary Cohen, the Mets play-by-play man on SNY, when the final score was posted, bottom of nine. 0-2 coming. Popped up, center field. Marsh is there. And the Mets' 42nd loss of the year is their most horrific. As the Mets' bullpen melts down, aided by a key error, and gives up four runs on one hit in the eighth as Buck Showalter tried to stay away from his best relievers, and the Mets pay the price. Here was Buck Showalter after that game. It's frustrating for the players and everybody, yeah, but, uh, you know, we got, uh, you know, we had some, we shot every bullet we had just about, and uh, we were hoping to get Robbie there with a, he pitched two, almost two innings yesterday, auto pitched equivalent of two yesterday, I mean, you know, he just, it's very easily to, so we had, uh, you know, we scored some runs and we had the chance to open some things up we didn't, but, uh, you know, the hit by pitches and things, you know, 
Brig has had some good outings for us, and it was it was tough for him today. That you know we made a couple errors that cost us, and uh, you know we can't come in there and walk those two left-handed hitters either. On Monday, they started a series against the Milwaukee Brewers, and Justin Verlander gave them a chance. Five good innings. Uh, he departed with a 1-0 lead, and then in the top of the sixth inning, this happened. Weimer, a high fly ball, deep center field. Going back is Nimmo. At the track, at the wall, gone! Joey Weimer flips this game. It's 2-1 crew. Fastball at 96, right down the middle. And Weimer sent it right back out where it came from. Played Pepper with the batter's eye in front of the apple. Brewers looking for that big hit. They just got it from their rookie. Welcome to New York, Joey Weimer. Bad from 620 WTMJ, and that would be the final score. Milwaukee 2, Mets 1. Justin Verlander spoke with reporters about the season so far. I don't think anybody saw this coming, man. I, uh, you know, uh, disappointing. It's disappointing for everybody in this room, I know. It's disappointing for the fans. Uh, just got to... <laughs> Just keep trying, you know. I, 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 if there's one thing that I know the guys in this room are doing is is trying our ass off, you know. It is, um, you know, every day we come to the park. I, uh, myself, it's trying to get better and figure out what's off. And I know that I know that most of the guys in this room are the same way. And um, you know, hopefully it clicks for everybody. But uh, you know, we got to we got to get going um, and soon. Verlander laughing at the absurdity of the whole situation. You hear the chuckles from him because the Mets now are eight games under 500. They're 16 games out in the National League standings. They're eight and a half games out in the wild card. Here's Buck Showalter. It's frustrating. We got to figure it out. We talk a lot about it. I can tell you, it's not like we're just saying, case for it'll osmosis will take. No, it's every day. You know, they, they look at things and experiment, try to get. You know, look at last year and it's good outings, bad outings. Believe me, they're they're grinding on all these things, and and we are in general. But uh, so it makes it frustrating because we just can't carry it over into the game. It's kind of like Jeff looks great hitting and this and whatever. All of a sudden, one at bat and or one pitch, and you know, there's some anxiety sometimes sets in. We got to work through that. Meanwhile, the team at the top of the National League East, the Braves, they never lose. Marcel Azuna hit a home run in the bottom of the seventh inning to give him a lead. Gray winding and pitching. Swinging a high fly to right. That ball's got a chance. That ball is gone. Marcel Ozuna has put the Braves in front of the bottom of the seventh. And from 680, the fan, that inning continued. One, two, high fly ball. Deep to left field. Wave bye-bye. Ronald Acuna with a bat flip and a two-run blast. And it's 4-1 Braves. And after their 4-1 win over the Twins, Ronald Acuna Jr. on a pace to finish this season with 216 hits, 79 walks, more than 70 stolen bases, more than 140 runs, 83 extra base hits, including 35 home runs. He's been unbelievable. Look, the player of the week last week was Luis Robert Jr. of the Chicago White Sox, and he gave the White Sox a lead in the top of the first inning in Anaheim last night. Yes, he has. High fastball, clock to left field. Does it have enough? Yes, sir! Oh, he rode another one out. Late in the count, early in the night here on the West Coast in a 1-0 lead.
That great Jason Benetti with that call. But Shohei Otani would tie the score in the bottom of the fourth. 3-1 delivery. And this is lifted high in the air. It's hit deep. And it is going to go out to right center. Monday night at the Big A. Showtime. And we're tied at one. Wow. This is some kind of bomb for Shohei. Now it was Terry Smith, Angels Radio, AM 830. And the Angels would walk it off. Here's the next pitch. It's low. It gets away from the catcher. Grand ball. Trout will score, and the ball game is over. So, boy, what a gift win tonight. A walk-off win for the Angels on a wild pitch. Brings in the winning run. Mike Trout from third base. And the Angels come away with the victory tonight here at the Big A. Win it by the final of 2-1. to one, And you can put a halo over this one. The Baltimore Orioles, Taylor's Orioles, blew out the Reds last night 10-3. to three. They got help from Jordan Westberg, rookie who made his debut at Camden Yards. Westberg, flare left side. It gets down, and Jordan Westberg has his first major league hit. Get him that baseball. Yeah, softly hit, but he just fights it off, but he controls the barrel of the bat, and good hitters do that. Mariners faced the Nationals in Seattle last night, and Colton Wong was part of a rally for Seattle in the bottom of the fifth. And the right-handers, 1-0 pitch on the way to Wong, swinging a fly ball deep into the gap in right center field. Going and going, and this one is going to be off the top of the fence. Ford Ronnie third, he'll score. Colton Wong in at second with a two-out RBI double. It just continues. It's the Mariners six and the Nationals three. Three runs are in with two outs here at the bottom of the fifth inning. Seattle Sports, 7-10 a.m. The Mariners win that game 8-4. And in a moment, I'll tell you why the Mariners should be an inspiration for the Mets. We're going to be talking about that with June Lee. And last night, Louisiana State won the national championship in college baseball against Florida 18-4. Give a listen. time since 2009 and seventh overall the Tigers can say we are champions Taylor what else you got Buster later today Sarah and I will be recording a new episode of the college game day podcast with Reese Davis and Pete Thamel they're going to talk about teams that were sort of in the middle class of college football last year and trying to break through into that upper crust in the 2023 season check it out the college game day podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast right now The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus 
It treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. June League covers baseball for ESPN, and last night that meant being at City Field, June. Uh, can you describe the scene there at the ballpark with the Mets now? Eight games under 500, eight and a half in the wild card, 16 games back in the National League East. I think you can feel the tightness in the Mets clubhouse. And it's, it's different from what it was last year just because the Mets didn't really struggle at any point last season. And so they're dealing with, with this specific group, this feeling of expectations and not living up to them for the first time. And it was funny, I was talking to one player yesterday who was talking about how he had rented a big apartment ahead of the season. And he, he we're just talking, talking about the state of the team. He's just like, if, if I thought that there was a chance I was going to get traded at some point this year, I would not have rented this enormous apartment somewhere in the city uh, because, you know, it wouldn't have been worth it, obviously. And so I, I think there's this sense of the disappointment is starting to set in into the clubhouse. And then obviously Mets fans are just kind of, outrageously mad at this team on a nightly basis at this point. And it feels like it's just different things from the pitching staff to the consistency of the lineup to, you know, the young guys who have come up to try to fill up the spots, not necessarily uh, kind of living up to expectations as well. And so I feel like it's just a different thing with the Mets on a night to night basis. Yeah. When uh, we would just play the sound of Justin Verlander, who threw his answer saying, you know, he didn't expect this. He was chuckling. It was almost like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, you could hear that in Justin's voice. I'm assuming you probably were part of that group last night. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, some, some of the people around the Mets are just like, this is so Mets of this to happen. Like, it's just like the bad voodoo continuing along with this new ownership group. And it, it you kind of look back at last season when the Mets had an opportunity at the trade deadline to really go hard after somebody and really try to improve their roster and they kind of relatively stayed pat, just given the scheme of the trade deadline. And, and they had a big lead at, over the Braves at the time. And they had a right, pretty good lead over the Braves. And you look back at that now, and it was like, you know, given how this roster constructed with a bunch of guys who are in their 30s, you had a great season from Starling Marte. Mark Cano was having a great season. Chris Bassett was having a very good season. Should they have just gone for it? Like, is, is that one of those instances where it's like, now or never you should have hit the gas pedal and, and gone for the World Series. And right now, like, just given how much regression you've seen from a lot of the free agents they went after last uh, two off-seasons ago and how they've kind of built the, the, the foundation of this roster, I've been thinking a lot about that trade deadline just looking back because it's hard not to feel like that was a, a huge wasted opportunity. So uh, because they're playing so badly and because it's New York, uh, you know, a lot of questions being asked about who might be in trouble and what changes might be on the horizon. I was on Get Up this morning and they asked me about whether or not Buck Showalter might be in trouble. And, and look, um, all you have to do is read the stories to know sort of how the media is feeling about it. Like he is taking shots left and right all over the place. Um, you know, I mentioned on Get Up that we saw the Phillies last year in a similar situation, shocked the baseball world by firing Joe Girardi, putting in Rob Thompson. They wound up going to the World Series. So there is precedent for teams making changes like this. 
but I would say this, and I said this on air, that every bit of feedback I get back from within the Mets organization is that Steve Cohen is very circumspect. He's not a, a chair-throwing owner. He's not a guy who's pitching fits. You know, I covered the Yankees. George Steinbrenner got so mad at his employees and how the team was doing that he 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 stripped the, the Delta Dental plan from the employees. That's not <laughs> Steve Cohen. And given the fact that he played a role in hiring Buck, I, I can't imagine him doing that, you know, and part of the reason why is because I don't even know who they necessarily, if they have somebody in mind who would take over. Yeah, I think you're spot on there because I remember Steve Cohen, I think it was maybe two, two or three months, two months in the season this year where he basically was saying like, I came from the investment world and in the investment world, unless you're trying to short everything, you need to really weigh things out through the ups and downs. And I think he's, he basically said that he was taking the same mindset here with the Mets I think the sports world is a little bit different in regards to whether or not you should be shorting things. But I, I think he's going to keep that mindset until it proves him wrong. And he is just, you know, two years into this massive experiment of him spending a gazillion dollars to try to make this team better. I mean, I, I think the thing that I've been thinking about personally is whether this team should go out of the trade deadline and try to shop Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander because you look at the way that this roster is built, you look at the flaws of the organization, not just at the major league level, but down below. One of the things that Billy Epler has had to do is try to build up that farm system again, because I mean, that's the whole reason why they went out and signed all these guys for a ton of money is to try to buy the farm system some time and give them a two to three window to compete while trying to build back up the minor leagues. And the quickest way to build back up the minor leagues would be trading away some of the you know best pitchers in baseball on paper and giving them to a contender who needs them heading into a World Series run. Like this team, I'm not sure, even if they made some sort of like Phillies-like run as a wildcard team or something, has the juice to make it deep into October. And so it might be the best long-term decision, in my opinion, to go out and trade Scherzer and Verlander at this point because those guys, regardless of their age, are going to bring back a lot of the trade deadline and I think one of the big flaws we've seen of this team and this roster so far has been they don't have the depth in the minor leagues for when the rotation Quintana and Carrasco have been down. You know, they haven't had the guys to kind of fill those in. And I think that giving away or, or trading away Verlander and Scherzer could help build this team up for a more sustainable future. So I'm going to go glass half full on you, and then I'm going to push back a little bit on that um, thought. And separately, in each of the last, and I looked this, I asked a you know, researcher who was on the show Get Up this morning to reach out to Elias to find out how often the teams come back from eight and a half game deficit of the wild card. It's actually happened in each of the last four full seasons. <laughs> you know, last year was the Mariners, who were nine games out. The Nationals in 2019 famously, you know, came back. Uh, from from a huge deficit early in that year. I think they were 19 and 31, and they wound up winning the World Series. So I still think it's early for them to actually go down the route of blowing it up and saying, hey, we're going to trade. Maybe you take it to the All-Star break and reassess at that point. And then at that, it's interesting, the last couple of days we've had conversations with executives of other teams. They see the Mets doing more of a measured sell-off where all the guys who veterans who are under contract through the rest of this year being the, the natural guys to be traded, Mark Hanna, Carlos Carrasco, David Robertson, that sort of thing. And here's why I'm pushing back on you on Scherzer and Verlander. Dude, I don't know how much trade value they actually would have because they're so expensive. The two highest paid uh, pitchers in history, they've both been up and down because of the inherent injury risk for both guys. 
You know, Max turns 39 in July. Justin's already 40 years old. Justin was good last night. You know, he wasn't dominant. Uh, they talked on the on the Mets broadcast about how his fastball this year there's been more cut than right on it. Maybe that's something he corrects. But I wonder if teams necessarily would be lined up to, you know, to to go after them unless it were a, a situation where the Mets would say, okay, we'll pitch in a ton of money on their salary. We'll offset a bunch of that if you give us a prospect. Just don't know if there'd be a team out there that would give them you know, the A-minus type prospect that, to me, that would that would be the type of prospect you'd need to justify the trade because the Mets are going to be right back in the situation for 2024. They've got to find a way to construct a rotation, and Verlander, Scherzer might be the best options for next year. What do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's fair. I think the, the thing that I never try to underestimate heading into a trade deadline is the desperation of teams, especially those yeah. looking for pitching. Like, well, I feel like this is like the quarterback in the NFL draft where every single year you, know, you see one or two guys who just shoot up into the top 10 because a team right. needs a quarterback. Teams who are in the postseason uh, hunt, they need starting pitching. And I feel like this year more than most, We've seen a little bit more parity in terms of the number of teams who are at least kind of vaguely in playoff contention, at least to this point in the season, who feel like they realistically have a shot uh, to not just make the postseason, but also make a run. And so I, I just never count out personally uh, how desperate teams can get at the deadline because, you know, we see kind of these bidding wars where, you know, teams give up way more than we expected almost on an annual basis for starting pitching uh, when it comes to the trade deadline. Yeah. And to your point, uh, the American League wildcard race is lining up to be an absolute monster <laughs> because of the, you know, the teams that are involved. You have the Angels who are right in the mix. They're desperate to make the playoffs. Maybe in the last year that they have Otani and Trout together as teammates. The Yankees having poured so much into this season. Uh, you know, Aaron Judge, first year of his contract. This is clearly their window to try to win. It's the window to try to win for the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, we don't talk about them being in uh, sorting to near the end of their window, but, you know, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette potentially are free agents after next year. Like, they need to start making traction and doing some damage in the postseason. Uh, it feels like the American League is going to be like five, uh, the Houston Astros, you know, uh, trying to become the first team to go back-to-back since the 98-2000 to 2000 Yankees. Um, you know that they'll be aggressive, and they've had Verlander before. So, I agree with you. You know, maybe the Dodgers are the team. You know, maybe uh, the Cincinnati Reds, who have a, suddenly an open window. Maybe they're a team that jumps into the thing. Maybe it's the Philadelphia Phillies. You know, their owner has said that, you know, cost be damned, I'm ready to go forward. And, hey, Dave Dombrowski, their head of baseball ops, he knows something about Justin Berlander or Max Scherzer. So you may well be right. Uh, it would be a fascinating decision. But do you agree with me? If you're the Mets, I, I think you still have to wait. As frustrated as their fans are, I think you have to at least give it to, like, July 20th. I noticed, though, that there's no mention of my beloved Boston Red Sox in this contender. I did not mention the Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think the, I think the Mets are in this really weird position because they've invested so much money into this team where it feels like they have to win. Like, there's almost like a like an image aspect to this, too, where it's like if you give up Verlander and Scherzer, you're just admitting how much of a colossal failure just investing all this money has been. I mean, there's been so many conversations around baseball from front offices to executives talking about whether or not Steve Cohen just throwing money at problems is actually going to solve things. 
because we historically haven't seen that. I mean, look at the San Diego Padres, for example. And so, you know, I feel like there's not even just like the, the baseball team building aspect to this, but also just like the, the image of the Mets, how much people love to clown the Mets in general. Like they they almost owe it to their fans to at least try to show that they are continuing to do this. I'm just not sure that that's the best way to go about building the team. I mean, I think fundamentally the flaws of this team and why this team has not lived up to expectations this year stems back to the guys that they signed two years ago, relying on a bunch of guys who were heading into their mid to late 30s. I mean, Eduardo Escobar is a guy who they signed for a bunch of money and they obviously just shipped off to the Los Angeles Angels. So this might just kind of, this problem right now might not have been preventable this past offseason because I've, I've talked to folks in the, the Mets front office who have basically been like, what more could we have done? We got out and got the best starting pitcher on the market. It right. might just be fundamentally a problem with how they built the team over the course of the last two years and specifically the guys they went out and were aggressive in signing. And they won 101 games last year, so it was reasonable to expect that they would still have a good team. Certainly not a team this bad. And I do feel like that, uh, you know, as we pick apart all their bullpen problems, we do underestimate the impact of losing the best reliever on the planet. Like that, when, when we write the history of the 2023 Mets, the beginning of the end of their season started in that moment when he got hurt, it feels like, you know, but uh, we'll see. You mentioned Escobar. Kind of like the fact that Perry Manassian, the general manager of the Angels, with uh, is doing everything he can to try to get the Angels in the playoffs. You're like, you know, Eduardo Escobar. Okay, we'll take a shot at him. You know, he won the National League Player of the Month last September. Let's see if he has something. Mike Moustakis, you know, okay, let's add him. I I like it when you have a general manager who knows what's at stake for the Angels this year and is doing everything he can. Do you agree? Disagree? 100% on board with what the Angels are trying to do, just because you have Shoei Otani, and you just don't want the Tungsten O'Doyle thing to happen on a night-to-night basis. You got to do every single thing possible to try to get Otani to the playoffs and give the best case possible to put the best foot forward to make sure that he tries to, you know, that you try to keep him, you know, for the long-term future. If you're not making the playoffs this year, it makes it a lot easier for Otani to just be like, you know, why would I stay here? And so you've got a general manager, I think, who has to kind of go out and do as much as he possibly can. Got nothing to lose. Because, right. Exactly. Got nothing to lose. Like, go for exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> right. And it was funny. Like, I, I don't know if you saw this clip on, of Mike Trout going on Mookie Betts' podcast for Bleacher Report. But he was talking about how you know they were having a conversation where Trout was asking Mookie about like, is this what the playoffs are like? And the fact that like Mike Trout of all people has to ask Mookie Betts in the middle of like a classic WBC game, is this what the playoffs are really like? Like that is so deeply sad to me as a baseball fan. I just want to see Otani and Trout in high leverage situations in the playoffs because we saw uh, in the WBC final how exciting it is to have two of the biggest stars in the game playing the biggest moments. Right. You perfectly transitioned me uh, to having a discussion about a conversation I had with Mookie over the weekend, which I just loved. I went up to him on Saturday because he made the announcement last week on social media. You saw it that uh, if he's on the all-star team, and that's not 100% certain, but I think pretty sure that's going to happen, that he's going to participate in the home run derby. And I walked up to him and I was like, so when did, you know, what made you decide to do that? And he goes, I still don't want to do the derby. And he, <laughs> he was laughing and he said, said that his wife, Brianna, basically told him like, look, you need to do this. You need to check the box. You've done just about everything in baseball. He's played in World Series. He's been an MVP. Uh, you know, he, he has checked just about every box but he hasn't done a derby. And I asked him about if he's going to get some advice 
especially being a guy who's 5'9 and 180 pounds when he's wet, uh, you know, <laughs> participating in this competition. And he goes, nah, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to wing it and have fun. And he looked at me, he goes, Steven hit home runs in putting practice. You know, and he's also talked in the past about wanting to participate uh, to raise awareness for black culture. I think it's cool he's doing it because I think he feels a larger responsibility. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to Mookie a lot about kind of his bigger picture goals in terms of just like growing his celebrity, his image. And I, I think you've seen over the course of the last couple of seasons where you know, him and his, his friends from childhood, uh, they've basically built up this like media, mini media company kind of in the, the vein of what LeBron James has done, uh, obviously in, in the basketball world and in the sports world at large, where you know, Mookie's now doing the podcast with Bleacher Report. He's got this YouTube channel where he's giving a lot of behind-the-scene glimpses of what it's like to be a baseball player and also his bowling exploits is on top of that. You know, he's putting himself out there in a way that I think if you met Mookie when he was a young guy in Boston, you know, he wasn't a guy that really sought out attention. He, he didn't really desire to be famous. Like, he played baseball because it was the best thing that, you know, the, the sport that he was best at. Um, but he didn't really care about kind of the, the fame side of things. I think that him and his friends have kind of built out a, a thing between kind of producing a, a Jackie Robinson documentary for Fox Sports where, you know, he, he's much more interested in trying to build that that cultural side uh, of of baseball now, you know, trying, trying to bring more, more black people to baseball as a whole. And I think that, you know, him building his image through being at this marquee showcase event through the home run derby, I think is kind of part of this larger picture vision of him trying to just get black kids interested in baseball. And I think that's, you see kind of that in, in how he's gone about doing everything off the field, especially over the course of the last year or so. You know who he reminds me of and what he's been doing. And I agree with you. When you talk to Mookie, I think you'd agree with me. You feel like this is an introvert who's is doing extroverted things because of a plan and he totally reminds me of Joey Votto like I think Joey Votto typically is very reserved generally his instinct is to keep to himself but as Joey's gotten older he's seen you know the benefit of using his platform and he's really kind of come out of his shell I see the same thing in Mookie yeah Mookie was a guy who like did not really do a lot when he was in Boston like he was a guy who I remember talking to him about this when when he was in Boston like he would just stay home a lot because he just didn't want to deal with like the hoopla of going out a ton. Like he was one of the most famous guys in the city. If he went out to a restaurant, he would get hoarded by a bunch of Boston sports fans, regardless of when he went. You know, I, I remember talking to him, I think this was last year when, you know, I was just asking him how his move to Los Angeles was. And he says he, he was getting recognized there, obviously. But I think it felt like he was just embracing it a little bit more. Like I was talking to someone who spent a lot of time around him uh, a couple of months ago. And, and they basically said that he had a mindset shift in how he viewed all these things. And I think, he, I think you're spot on in that he, he is an introvert and it's part of why he's been able to be as good at baseball as he is. Cause he's so focused on, on singular things within the sport, like improving his launch angle, all that stuff. I, I think that that part of him has kind of fed into why he's such a great baseball player. But I think he now sees the power of like putting his personality out there. He's always had this, big personalities, but he's, but he's been afraid to kind of show it. Uh, and now that he's showing, it, I think he's seeing how he can have uh, an, a bigger effect on the culture as a result of just putting himself out there and, and knowing that like people, people like his personality. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I mean, he's got a huge heart. 
that he has been reluctant to show because there's a natural humility there. I'll never forget 2018 World Series. Somebody, he was playing with the Red Sox. They're in the World Series. And somebody on social media posted a picture of him taking all the extra food from the Red Sox postgame spread uh, and giving it to homeless. Uh, and that kind of became a thing uh, in the media and social media. And the next day I was doing the interview, uh, pregame interview for, uh, in the World Series for ESPN Radio. And Mookie was bummed like I, that I found out about it, that people found out about it, that I was asking him about it. Because he, you, you could tell he felt like it's not really an act of charity if I'm getting all this attention for it. That's what it wasn't what he was going for. And I just thought it said so much about him as a person that that's what his response was. He could have, yes, yeah, absolutely used that to launch into, yes, I'm a, what a great guy. I and mean, he wasn't interested at all in that, June. I thought there was something really cool and endearing about that. Aaron Judge, I think we still can say the Yankees have no idea what they're going to do when he's coming back. Yeah, I mean, it's been really weird over the course of the last couple of weeks listening to Aaron Boone try to deflect on almost a daily basis of when Aaron Judge is going to come back. Like, he's gotten testy with the media. Aaron Boone, as you know, as a you know former colleague of his, he's so, like, outgoing and, and nice. And when you see him get angry at reporters for just asking, like, when is Aaron Judge coming back, it felt like they were trying to hide something there, like, just deflect from the entire situation. And when they just refused to give a timeline for basically the first two weeks, I mean, it's hard to be optimistic about that as a whole. And, you know, Aaron Judge is not normally someone you see in the Yankee clubhouse very often, but he was really just totally gone the last two weeks. Like, we didn't get to see him walk around. Like, there was nothing. He would just stay in the back and stay away from the media. And so I think all of that kind of led to speculation among people who are around the Yankees on a regular basis. Like, this is probably not good. And obviously that kind of came to fruition in the Yankees saying that there's a, you know, a, a tear in, in that toe. And so uh, just a really weird situation in terms of how the, the publicity of it has been handled. But on top of that, like it's obviously having a huge effect on how the team is performing on the field as well. I think teams lie all the time about injuries. I will tell you that in this case, I think the Yankees are being totally trans. They don't know. They don't have any idea because the injury is so weird. <laughs> You know, it's a big toe injury for a guy who's 6'7", 282. And if he were to come back in a month, I think they would be thrilled. Uh, but they don't know if he's going to come back in a month. They don't know if he's going to come back in six weeks or two months. Um, you know, I've seen other injuries with other players that are similar to this, and I think they're perplexed about uh, about what's to come. And obviously, this is a time when they're just going to have to rope-a-dope it and try to hang in there. All right, June, thanks for doing this. Always great to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Buster. Over the weekend, Roxy Bernstein, Doug Glanville caught up with Dodgers DH, J.D. Martinez. Give a listen. A beautiful day for baseball in L.A. Dodgers and Astros game two of the series. And we're joined by J.D. Martinez of the L.A. Dodgers. And your move to the West Coast. I know you're briefly with Arizona, but what's it been like being out on the West Coast? Oh, it's been fun. Um, you know, it's nice. It's great weather. Um, it's just a, it's a good vibe, good, good atmosphere out here. Um, you know, the team's been great. So it's been welcoming. Well, J.D., you settled nicely into a D.H. role. What's the adjustment been like gradually moving away from getting reps in the outfield to just concentrate fo focusing on the D.H. position? Um, it's, you know, it's definitely different. Um, you know, early on in Boston, it was kind of an adjustment period. 
uh, just trying to find a routine. That was like the biggest thing is identifying a routine. You know, um, there's so much where you're out there and you kind of disconnect from the game and it's kind of like you're worried about defense and you're worried about, you're not worried about your swing and, you know, then you come in and you got to hit and it kind of like, it's a good separation. And here it's kind of like trying to find that same thing, trying to find that same feel where, you know, you're just not here and just focused on your swing, 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 swing the whole time because you go crazy. What are some of the things you do to try to stay mentally engaged during the course of a game as you're waiting for your next at bat? Um, you know, I mean, it's different things, you know, whatever's kind of, whatever's kind of hot at that time, you know, whatever's kind of <laughs> feels like working. Um, sometimes I'll come out here and I'll watch, you know, I'll stand there and just watch the game like everyone else. Um, you know, wait for about probably four or five batters before I'm up and go down to the cage, start warming up and, you know, getting ready for my next at bat. Well, J.D., you're a true student of the game. You have a, a discipline, a routine. Where did all of those routines come from to create that structure to prepare you for a game? Um, I think it's how I cope with everything. Um, I think for me it's how, like, I don't get caught up in the results. I mean, I know it's a result-based game, and it's, you know, obviously everyone wants results, and, you know, I want results just as much, if not more than anybody. Um, but... It's a game of failure and how are you going to, you know, handle it, you know? So for me, it's like I just get caught up in the process and get caught up in the routine and stuff to get me prepared for my at-bat. And I know that if I do everything I can to prepare for an at-bat, prepare for a game, I know that I gave it my best shot that day, you know? Um, that's pretty much why I'm very structured in my routine. And, you know, I have my routine of what I do every night after games, before games, during games, you know, stuff to give you the best chance to be successful. J.D. Martinez, the Dodgers, with us here on ESPN Radio. And for you, when you're really making your name in the major league level, you were in Detroit. And you got to play every day with Miguel Cabrera, who's going on his swan song his last season this year in the big leagues, J.D. How much did you take away from watching him every day as far as emerging as a major league hitter? Um, You know, just watching him every day in the box. Um, Miggy was never one to really talk about, you know, like a lot of stuff, you know, approaches or, you know, like swing thoughts. I feel like he was always kind of like, you know, just a natural, you know, gifted guy. And he just went out there and it's almost like his uncle was the one who taught him how to hit. He told me, you know, he taught him the right way. Um, and, you know, it was just very impressive just what he did every day. It felt like it didn't matter whether it was a home run, a hit, a walk, a play he made at first, uh great at bat off a pitcher you know that he racked up his pitch count like he always did something to help us win every day um and gave us a chance um so it's just impressive just to watch that and watch how he kind of maneuvers his way through a major league season the way he maneuvers his way through aces you know those aren't the guys you make your money on those are the guys you got to kind of grind out and the way that he would do it and it's it was something i you know i was like dang that's that's how this guy hits 300 every year well, 2023 this season, what's been the biggest adjustment for you in hitting approach, just taking a step forward? As, of course, we all, you know, all get older in the game, you get smarter in many ways, also make some quick adjustments. What's been that for you? Um, I don't know. I think it's just understanding my swing a little bit. I mean, back together with Robert, and he kind of, you know, knows my swing better than anybody. And, you know, a lot of bad habits have accumulated over the last four years, I would say, you know, where... I've had some success and I've been successful at times just because I feel like, you know, my 
my knowledge of how I get pitched and how the game is played and stuff like that and stuff I've learned. But pretty much my swing is, you know, kind of just held me back from being that, you know, like that next step, that player that I know I could be. Um, so just kind of just grinding that out this year um, has been the most things and it's been the biggest part is just grinding it out, trying to get back, you know, trying to clean some things up and see what happens. Yeah. You know. Long time ago, you were with that organization on the other side. Do you ever think back to those days and maybe when they released you and the Tigers picked you up, that could have been the best thing that ever happened in your career? Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, it was one of those things where I remember being in that situation at the time, you know, I wanted to be in Houston. It was my organization, the team that believed in me and this and that. And then, you know, snap of a finger, they don't believe in you anymore and they don't <laughs> think you have what it takes. And, you know, you're on to someone else. And, uh, you know, it was it was honestly a blessing in the sense that I was able to go from a, a team that was really struggling and a team that was really trying to find its identity at the time to a team that was full of veterans, that was established that there wasn't so much pressure on me, you know, and so much pressure on the young guys as there was in Houston when I'd first come up to, like, you know, I mean, I remember my second or third day in the big leagues, I was hitting fourth. Like, it's like, whoa, you know, and I didn't have that pressure on me in Detroit. I was able to get my feet wet and, you know, kind of understand it a little bit better, watch these guys. You know, the pressure was never on me in Detroit. The pressure was on everyone else. The team was stacked. I was just, you know, a little icing on the cake or cherry on top, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, I think that was kind of like a, one of the biggest adjustments for me and being able to just watch those guys, you know, prepare. And it's a veteran team. We didn't have that in, in Houston. So, you know, it's obviously something that at the time, you know, it's what's the famous expression goes. It's the darkest before dawn or whatever. You think it's the world's ending. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, it's just starting. Oh, well, well and, and you think about 2023 this year, what's your motivation at this stage in your career? What, what kind of drives you on a day-in, day-out basis? Um, for me, it's just, you know, I want to be the best JD I can be. You know, I want to be the best version of myself I could be. And I feel like I haven't been able to do that, you know, the last couple of years. Um, and I just kind of want to prove it to everyone, but to myself mostly. Because I know I still have what it takes. I know I can still, you know, go out there and compete and still show everyone what I can do. J.D., appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. J.D. Martinez of the Dodgers. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great. I am glad that you're here. Everything is all set, and we're podcasting a day late, better late than never. Yeah, I apologize for all that yesterday. Uh, yeah, really frustrating. When <laughs> you hear the flap of your tire as you're rolling through, you're like, oh, oh no. No, uh, thank but- you. But you know what? It gives us more context. Being delayed to talking with you gives us one more day of context for the New York Mets. So I'm going to make you head of baseball operations for the Mets for a day. Sarah, uh, I ran through the numbers with June about the how e- in each of the last four full seasons, uh, a team has come back from at least eight and a half games in the wild card race. This is according to the Elias Sports Bureau to make the playoffs. Uh, okay. If you were sitting at the head of baseball operations with the Mets, what is sort of the, you know, the penciled in deadline for you that you got to start to see a turnaround in terms of maybe moving from trying to win to trying to retool for 2024? I mean, maybe the all-star break. I think people might argue that that deadline has already passed. But to that point, I mean, it's funny. You know, I think we have paired together the Mets and Padres for so long. Over this last, you know, six months, eight months, what have you, since the winter meetings, the two teams that went out spent a lot of money and are in similar situations. They're right there in that wildcard race, in that eight-ish back uh, situation. So I think to that point, it's going to be one of those two teams if this happens this year. So I would guess that it has to be within this next two weeks or so. And, you know, I don't know between those two teams, which it might be that could really turn it around. But I, you know, it's disappointing to see any team not live up to the expectations we had. You and I were talking about the Padres for the World Series. So don't remind me. Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, I was all on board. You convinced me. So I hope for the sake of those fan bases and everyone else that both of those teams figure it out. But you have to imagine that clock is really ticking. Oh, 100%. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is let's go with a zero. So speaking of the Mets in a way and the NL East, Part of what the Mets are dealing with is the fact that the Marlins won't go away. 
it isn't just Luis Arise, it isn't just Jorge Soler. It's also Yuri Perez, 20-year-old starting pitcher who they called up. They call him Little Goat, Baby Goat, I believe, with all of his sort of uh, the way he looks up to Sandy Alcantara and the way he mimics a lot of how Sandy prepares for games. He is off to an incredible serve. And over his last three games, he has gone six plus innings and not allowed a run. He is the youngest pitcher since at least 1901, with three straight scoreless outings of at least six innings. Think about them. We have Dwight Gooden, we have Christy Mathewson, other 20 year olds who have done this, but he is the youngest of all of them. He is so dominant on the mound, and it's really, really awesome to watch. Number two. Number two is negative 20. I don't know how often we've had a negative number, but after what happened in Colorado this weekend, we're going with a negative number. So if you weren't paying attention over the weekend to the Rockies-Angels series, the Angels had a massive, massive win on Saturday in which they scored 21 runs in the third and fourth innings combined, which was tied for the most in any two-inning span in the game in MLB history. With the game in 1894, they scored all of these runs. Ultimately, though, they lost the series. The Rockies became the second team all time to win a series of any length with a run differential of negative 20 or worse, joining the Louisville Colonels, which I've learned to say. I had trouble with that last week. I say Colonels. I always do that, but they've come up so much lately that here I am pronouncing them right. June 1987. Against the Chicago Colts, Louisville won two of three games despite being outscored by 23 runs in that series. This is just one of those ridiculous things that happens at Coors Field. And it's one of those things we see happen with the Angels and Joe Tony and Mike Trout, but it was absolutely Fascinating to see all the notes coming out of this series over the weekend. Number one. Number one is 15. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me go on a rant about cycles. I think it is better to have four extra base hits. I think the single is kind of silly. I think the idea of a cycle is a little contrived. You know, it's cool, but it's a four-hit game, and I would rather see a couple of home runs, something else. So if I am here with a cycle note, that means it's pretty impressive. So Ellie Dela Cruz the other day had a cycle in just his 15th career game. That is the third fewest games at the time of a player's first career cycle among guys to debut since 1900 behind only Cliff Heathcote, who did it in his sixth game in 1918, 
a Gary Ward in 1980 in his 14th game. And by the way, this triple was 10.83 seconds home to third. If there's any chance that number rings a bell, is because that was the exact home to third time on his first triple of his career. I believe I talked about it on on here. That's tied for the fastest tracked home to third time in Major League Baseball this season with himself and tied for the second fastest since the start of 2020 behind only Corbin Carroll last year. Ellie Dela Cruz is a joy to watch. He's the guy who gets me on here talking about cycles. That is notable, and it was a really, really exciting game for the Reds. Well, you know the Boog Shelby completely agrees yeah. with you. You guys are on team anti-cycle. Uh, yes. That's for sure in terms of, uh, in terms of highlighting it. Uh, Yuri, Yuri Perez, after you put those numbers through, I was looking at some of his stats. It's interesting, his game log, he is allowed, he's allowed seven runs in his nine starts in the big leagues, Sarah. I know you probably know all this. Uh, and out of those seven runs, four are with solo homers. The other three runs happened all in one game. So in his nine starts in the big league so far, he's only had one game in which he's allowed runs through any other way other than solo homers. Think about that. That, I mean, that is insane for a 20-year-old pitcher. It is. <laughs> and the way that he maintains his composure on the mound, to your point, batting average with runners and scoring position, all of that that speaks to what you're saying. It has been so impressive to watch. And with Sandy O'Condra not looking exactly the way he looked last year, he's really filled a void for them. But it has been so exciting to watch, and he is such a fun pitcher to watch. Yeah, 100%. All right. Uh, before you go, I, I want to, you know, reprise a, a conversation, review a conversation you and I had over the weekend uh, related to Jose Altuve. This was so much fun for me because it was a reminder, you know, you can be a, a an all-star player, a future Hall of Famer the way that Jose Altuve was. And by the way, yes, he was on the 2017 Astros. That will not prevent him from being in the Hall of Fame. Multiple batting titles. You know, he's coming up uh, – know, on some benchmarks, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. He's one of my favorites to talk to. And uh, going into that series, I was looking at his numbers and thinking, oh, wow, okay, can he can hit some big round numbers this year. He's on, on track to get uh, hit career hit number 2,000 this year. He's only five home runs away from career homer number 200. He's closing in on 300 career steals. I think he's down to like 13 or something like that. And he's coming up on 400 doubles. So I, after I saw that, I texted you and I said, so how many players have done that combination of numbers? And you texted back, 17 in the history of baseball have had 2,000 hits, 200 homers, 300 steals, 400 doubles. So on Saturday, I saw uh, Jose in the Astros clubhouse, walked up to him, and I mentioned that to him. And I could see this little wry smile on his face as I ran through that. And I said, yeah. 17 guys have done it. Nine of those are Hall of Famers, plus Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. And later, after I had that conversation, like 30 minutes later, uh, their bench coach came up to me, Joe Espada, and he said, what are those numbers you told Jose? Jose had gone right to, to Joe and mentioned them to him. And Joe was talking about how he has to tell Jose, 
Look at the back of your baseball card. You are a really great player. And Sarah, after he got done taking batting practice that day, Jose uh, walked past me and he goes, 17, huh? He goes, I needed to hear that. And then he went out that night and got three hits. Thanks to you. I mean, I love that. First of all, he should not need that. Uh, that encouragement, he has had an amazing career. But I love when guys have an appreciation for the history of the game, an appreciation for where they fit within that. So when you called me to tell me that story, I was just smiling ear to ear. I love, love that. And I love that he appreciated the numbers. I mean, that's why I put them together. But the most part is to make guys feel good and make them smile over what they're accomplishing, which is really, really impressive. Yeah. Sarah Taylor, I think you'd agree. Like a player that great with harboring those insecurities, that's part of what makes them great, right? It's so funny that he he needed Buster and Sarah to, for a little <laughs> pick me up there. All time great. That's that is an awesome story. Yeah, future Hall of Famers, they're just like us. They need a little bit of words yeah. of affirmation every now and then. I once heard a story about Alex Rodriguez. You know, he was, this is when he was playing on those horrific Texas Ranger teams. And in three years he was there, he's winning MVP. They were terrible. And he, went, he got five hits in a game. And he went to one of his teammates after get, that game and said, hey, how does my swing look? <laughs> he was like the A plus student. He was like the A plus student in high school who got a you know a ninety nine point five instead of a hundred and was fretting over it. Sarah Langs. Oh my goodness! I mean, we've been there. We've all been there with that yes. test. Exactly what you said. But this is great, and I just love like you know players are all different. Some of them are totally immune and apathetic to their numbers but it's always great to know that someone who has compiled so many like Jose Altuve is aware of them I think that is important and obviously team is the most important thing but he's had an amazing career and to be aware of that is really important yeah, two players that I, I've been around on the other end of the spectrum who they're they're coming and they know they're going to kick your ass Derek Jeter, Shohei Otani. Like, they, they're not even thinking about, you know, what's wrong. You know, Jose's response to me, Sarah, I didn't tell you this the other day. First thing he said to me, he said, what do you think when you hear those numbers? He goes, I don't know how I did it. Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> so love anyway, that. Yeah, a, a fun conversation with him, uh, with a great guy. All right, Sarah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Tuesday. Our pal Reggie at Baseball Yoda Weather writes, and Buster, I hate to rain on fans, but 19000 for the Orioles Sunday. Time to do better. Tampa, you've lost your team. Your owner is trying to win 18000 for the best team in Major League Baseball. Smallest crowds on Saturday and Sunday, outdrawn by both days in Miami. Oakland, do you want the Rays? Reggie, bringing some rain to the parade here. And I'm going to go with a little sunshine. Did you guys see the numbers that Major League Baseball attendance this year is up to up by 7.8%? No, I And the not. TV ratings are up, and the metrics are showing us the people are watching longer. I think these rule changes are working. It makes it a better product. I don't think there's any doubt about it. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, just from casual people, and you probably get it all the time. Like, I just think people are generally more interested. Like, it's very anecdotal, but just randos. I had a I had a pal of mine, Will Reber. He's a big hockey guy. He started texting me being like, hey, I'm listening to the podcast now because I'm, I'm backing on baseball. Baseball's more fun. I mean, this is a, you know, just he's basically a guy off the street telling me that he's back into baseball. What about you, Buster? Are you hearing a lot of that? Yes, a ton. And I, you know, always go back to my son, my, my one person focus group, uh, in the past, I'd ask him to watch baseball and he would say, Nope, not, it's too slow. Not interested. Cause he didn't know if it was going to be three forty-five or four hour game, uh, you know, blowouts. He's watching every pitch of every Braves game because he knows when he turns it on, kind of like it is in the NBA, you can reasonably expect that within two to two hours and uh, two and a half to two hours and 45 minutes that you're going to see the end of the game. And on top of that, and Tim Kirchner was the first person I heard say this in the spring, you can't take your eyes off it because something might happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's moving along. There's stuff happening as opposed to, you know, Pedro Baez coming in and taking 45 seconds between pitches. Oh, snap. Andrew DeSalvo at DeSalvotion writes, in seven of the top eight position players in war are 25 or younger and the other is 26. Is this a sign of the future because the requirements to excel in today's game require peak athleticism or are these just unusually talented young players? Yeah, you talk to evaluators around the sport. They think young players are better prepared to come into professional baseball than they've ever been uh, in the past. Um, And I do think athleticism this year has been rewarded uh, by these new rules, um, you know, and, and last fall when I asked a lot of executives, which teams are going to do the best under the new rules. So many then were saying Tampa Bay Rays because they're super athletic. Stewie 1969 writes in has Ollie Marmel lost the clubhouse. Is he losing faith in the front office? Is he losing faith? And I wish I could give you like a great answer to that, but I feel like because I haven't been around the Cardinals in a while, I can't give you a strong answer to those questions specifically. Um, Cardinals, like the Mets, are moving very quickly to a time when they're going to have to take some action. You know, one way or another, whether it's a a total retooling of the roster, an aggressive trade, uh, shift, uh, look, I, I personally think of like firing a manager in midseason is really generally pretty stupid. But I said that last year when the Phillies fired Joe Girardi. Taylor, you remember mm, that? Yeah. I was like, that yeah. is a dumb move. And guess what? Rob Thompson, they made the World Series. And Sarah, Sarah Abbott's favorite uh, team, you know, uh, got her within two games of a championship. Oh, so close, but yet so far. Uh, Brian Stone King, our guy, has emerged. He writes in, I find it disheartening that starting pitchers going six innings is a celebrated thing. I liked it better when that was a pedestrian effort not worth mentioning. Perhaps if they were taught to pitch rather than throw hard, we could see greatness again. Brian, on top of that, uh, all this data that's coming out, uh, and I agree with you generally, I don't like this idea of running, you know, this uh, relay team of sprinting sprinters out there, these pitchers throwing one innings. I don't find it uh, com- as compelling as starting pitchers. And the injury numbers are staggering. I think there was a story in Sports Illustrated last week that 51% of the pitchers in baseball last year have suffered an injury. 51%. This is chase for velocity, chase for swing and miss. And I don't think sports getting away from it. Blue Domer Dave writes in Buster, you mentioned expansion on Friday. Talk us through the pros and cons of eight divisions of four, the NFL model versus four divisions of eight, the NHL model. The NFL model means bad teams can make the playoffs, but I guess you get more division winners. Yep. 
That's exactly right. And you're likely, as we've seen with the NFC East in recent years, you're likely to have an under 500 team that's going to make the playoffs. I mean, shoot, we're seeing it in the American League Central now. Imagine if you spread it out even more. Um, and I don't have the configuration in front of me where I think the, you know, the franchise from Nashville will land, uh, you know, Vegas and what's the other expansion city that they're going to, you know, who knows, maybe they revisit Oakland. I doubt it mm-hmm. uh, with the expansion uh, city. But uh, I do think that Major League Baseball wants more teams out West. They feel like they have to have more representation in that part of the country. All right. There you have it. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. And Buster, I got to say, you got a flat tire yesterday. You're walking out. I was thinking there's no one I would rather be in that situation with than you because I feel like you're you're such a grinder. I know you were probably feeling down, but you were probably rolled your sleeves up and like, let's go. Let's change this dang tire. I bet I feel like you were quick on it, too. How fast did you change that tire in? 15 minutes. Let's go. Oh, I love it. I did okay. I was trying to figure out the equipment because it was the first time, you know, each uh, set of equipment with a, you know, that they have in, in cars. I had never mm-hmm. even looked at it. And I'm like, okay, how does this fit here? They had one special lug nut, uh, which I, I still don't understand why they had that. But <laughs> anyway, we figured it out. 15 minutes, I had a couple people beeping at me, I'm sure, because my New York plates out here in Montana. Oh, you disgusting East Coaster. Get out of here, Buster. Thanks for running <laughs> in, everyone. All right, that's it for today. My thanks to Sarah June, Sarah Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.